Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 27th of February 2023 and this is episode 290. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author, tour guide and historian Clive Harris about his research into the military contribution of London during the Great War. Clive spoke to me from his home in Hertfordshire. Clive, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in London, its contribution and the Great War? Well, thanks, Tom. And it's a, it's a thrill to, to be involved again. Um, I've just always loved London. Um, I'm very much what you would call a mockney uh, in that I was born in Welling Garden City, which is about 20 miles outside of the city, but to, to London family. Uh, and in fact, the recent advent of ancestry over the last few years has enabled me to uh, follow one branch of the family back to 1520s inside the walls of Londinium. Uh, so that attachment that I always had with the capital, you know, has, has played out through my own heritage. And growing up, uh, all of my grandparents, aunties, uncles used to just talk about London in the war. You know, in both wars, it was a, I thought every family sat around on a Sunday and talked about being bombed um, wherever they lived. Uh, so, yeah, great attachment to the country, great uh, the city, great pride in London. I love it. It's no better than anywhere else. Um, and uh, it's mine. And that, that's, that's that's really where my interest began. So let's go back to London before the First World War in 1914. What was it like? I know that's a huge question to ask. <laughs> well, a huge question for a huge city. And I mean, in a nutshell, it was significantly more influential then than it was now. It was without doubt the absolute hub and centre uh, of the empire. Uh, as we knew it, the largest empire that's existed, that some people have spoken about. Uh, and uh, what happened in London would influence the globe. Now, we're still fairly important with regards to financial services and what have you, but um, nowhere near as important as, as, as London was then, not only just from a banking perspective, but manufacturing. You know, lots of the arms industry was, was still at that stage located inside London. And uh, the decades that had led up to the to the Great War had seen a massive, massive boom in the population. So it's just over seven million people in 1914 living in London. Uh, and I think um, it's estimated that one in five of the people in England lived within, you know, greater London in the decade prior to the Great War. It's a massive amount, massive amount. Um, with regards to what it was like to live in London, it was very much cheek by jowl. Uh, there was a, a, a significant emerging middle class as the railways pushed London out wider on the back of Victorian expansion. Uh, and the underground system was especially um, increasing. And lots of uh, middle class families were starting to move out towards the suburbs. Uh, yet within the city itself and areas like the East End and South East London, there was still a fair amount of poverty, a considerable amount of po poverty. Um, so much so that it, it, during a recruiting rally for the Boer War uh, of the 170 recruits that turned up to volunteer, uh, only nine were found physically fit to enlist in the army. You know, and that's as late as 1900. 
because life was hard. Uh, sometimes you'd have, you know, on average in the East End, there'd be 25 people to each each bathroom. Uh, so there'd been a, a sort of a, a plan to introduce public baths across these working class areas. Uh, employment wasn't easy. The Industrial Revolution was just on the wane. Uh, so even things like the docks, uh, you'd have large queues of men waiting to to um, uh, get any sort of temporary labour they could. You know, one of those incredible trades that existed in London prior to the Great War that we've we've is lost to time now is the knocker upper. Someone who would literally go around the streets, you'd pay him, and he'd throw stones up at your window so that you woke up before your neighbours and got down to the docks in time to be employed. You know, it just seems like a bygone world really doesn't it so uh, you know for every wealthy person in london there were three or four very very poor people that would be pretty much existing in slums as we we refer to them today now, did london have a sort of a large immigrant community i'm thinking about people who sort of migrate from the countryside into into the city they did that's a, a, a really good point tom because the largest the oldest migrant community really in london at this time that had established itself was was french um, but it, the largest was actually German, and uh, there was there were over sixty thousand uh, Germans existing in London at the time of the Great War, and a whole there were I think there were a dozen German churches. There was two German schools. There was two German speaking newspapers published daily in London. Uh, anyone that's been to King's Cross now will go to drink in a giant sort of Weatherspoons establishment that's called the German Gym because it was exactly that a huge gymnasium uh, for Germans to use. Uh, and uh, of course, that changes overnight. And um, it's worth straight at this point, at this part of the conversation, to point out that the German population had declines down to around about four thousand by the time we get to nineteen eighteen. So that swathe of people to change their names, anglicise their names, uh, anglicise products, anglicise businesses. One of the most interesting ones was um, Sainsbury's, who were perhaps the largest supermarket, uh, or are just grosser as they would have been at the time across London. One of their top products was the German sausage, and uh, they had to change the name to luncheon meat, uh, which is something we still use that word today, don't we? Really, school packed lunch boxes, uh, but comes as direct result of the war. Uh, but there was a large migrant population, and it was transient. People would come to London ter- temporarily from from all all parts of the empire as well. So they may be living here for a few years on their way through for business, constantly changing. We turn on our TV today and we see these programmes escape to the country and uh, you don't need to go too far to to meet someone from, from Cornwall or East Anglia who will say, oh, it's all those Londoners putting the prices up. There was a reverse culture just prior to the Great War. Uh, there was, um, uh, you know, lots of people from the country coming into London, almost taking work away and making things harder for the indigenous Londoner. And that seems just quite a strange concept to us today, doesn't it? So let's turn to London's contribution during the Great War. So what what, what was the capital's uh, contribution in terms of manpower to the British armed forces? This is something that really uh, got me thinking. And it was the amount of times I'd been on the battlefields and, uh, you know, you'd go to the the great points of remembrance, Teakvale, Menningate, Heller's Memorial, wherever you are. And you look down those rows upon rows of regiments and, you know, we often stop, go to our local ones, don't we? And we think, wow, you know, they must have had a bad day on 9th of May, 1915. And you see all the rows of guys on Obers Ridge or whatever, second deeps. But I was always astounded by the amount of London regiment names on there. 
And the more you started looking, adding up the blocks, I started thinking, well, they, we don't really, we don't really shout too much about what London did in the Great War. It's not, it's not something that we tend to talk about too much. We just assume that's that's the way it was. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, the statistics I found were quite outstanding. It was just incredible, really. There were 7.1 million people living in London when war was declared. And of that, over a million enlisted, over a million, somewhere between 1.05 to 1.1 million Londoners, depending on what source you look at. And that roughly equates to one in seven men in khaki across the whole of the the British contribution. Um, And from that, we have 130,000 killed, 130,000 killed. And all three of those statistics actually work out into one in seven. So it's good to see those statistics, but then you need to start comparing it to others because I'm, I'm a real believer that London's no better than anywhere else. It's just it's just mine, so I'm proud of it. Um, so at no stage is this a race. There's no stage this is a way of saying, oh, yeah, we did this. No one else did that. That's not what I want. I just wanted to try and understand the contribution. And the nearest I could get to anything in population to London was Canada. And Canada is 7.2 million. Now, it's obviously logistical re, you know, hardship to get involved in the war compared to, to, to Londoners who just went to the local recruiting office and could find themselves in France fairly quickly. Um but uh, Canada is 7.2 million, of which 650,000 people enlist, roughly half, and uh, have 65,000 war dead. Uh, Australia's 5 million, uh, 300,000 enlist, of which there's 62,000 war dead. So actually, you know, if you're just looking at statistics alone, London has a higher enlistment rate than both Canada and Australia. And actually has a a sort of a almost equal death rate to both countries. So it's unfair to say, well, how did London contribute to war compared to, say, and give another city in the UK? It's incomparable because of the size of it. It's really only comparable to to countries, if that makes sense. It's an incredible figure, isn't it, really? One in seven. Um, I even had a quick look uh, at Victoria Cross Awards, which by no means should be a benchmark for anyone's contribution. Um, But of the 626 Victoria Crosses awarded in the Great War, 81 went to people who'd been born in London, uh, which again equates to just about one in seven. So it's consistent, consistent. So are these people who are enlisting and joining up with local units? By and large. um, And now initially the the figures in London are swayed slightly in that um, the initial recruitment drive, everyone turns up to enlist. But the fact is, among the working classes, some of them are just not able to get in. They're not fit enough. Um, by contrast, those that are working in financial sectors or in insurance or in, in office clerks, that sort of thing, they do get in. So we have a larger influx of people from uh, of skilled trades uh, and, uh, and of decent education. That makes the, the, uh, the bulk of people who enlist in those early days. And then as the drive for men becomes more and more uh, it's easier and easier to get in slightly then you see more people coming through in london uh, if we look at the line regiments uh, and there are five that principally recruit from the city and starting in the north you'd have middlesex regiment northwest the essex regiment uh, have a number of battalions that recruit in london that come south into the east end the city of london regiment is the royal fusiliers and then 
you have the uh, East Surreys and the Royal West Kents. So I've taken five line regiments and I looked at all the battalions they raised in the Great War and 132 battalions were recruited from London. 132 battalions. And that's that's a lot until we then, of course, talk about the uh, you know, almost unique London regiment, which was a territorial formation that had been around since 1908, 1909. And they themselves raised a further 78 battalions, you know, forming four divisions, um, uh, which in total gives us 210 infantry battalions alone raised within Greater London. 210 battalions. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you think about the size of the British Army today. We've got 25 battalions or something. Um, so I know we're a much more agile force, but that contribution alone is incredible. And the London Regiment, which is very much, and I know you're very much aware of them, Tom, is is locally driven. So, you know, the battalion closest to my heart, the 20th being the Blackheath and Woolwich Battalion, would recruit locally. Uh, they end up raising three battalions, two of which overseas. And the journey of a Londoner, I think, is fascinating. If you joined, and I'm sure this is replicated in other parts of the country, so by no means unique, but if you were working in the Woolwich Arsenal and you managed to get yourself uh, allowed to leave work to enlist in the Colours and you join the 2nd Battalion of the uh, 20th Londons, you're going to find yourself in France, in Salonika, then in Palestine. You're going to liberate Jerusalem. You'd have been through Egypt and then you come back to France for the last 100 days in advance to victory, and then you go back to Woolwich, and someone says, what did you do in the war, Dad? I mean, it's just an amazing journey, isn't it? An amazing journey. So some of them have quite quite colourful histories as well. Um, so, um, yeah, 26,000 members of the London Regiment lost in the Great War, just in the London Regiment. Um, that doesn't take into account those in the Line Regiment. So they are 210 infantry battalions, and we haven't mentioned Woolwich being home of the Royal Artillery. Um, the Royal Engineers had large swathes of, of, of London recruits as well because of the levels of education. And the Guards, you know, omnipresent in the city as well. So it would almost be an, an endless task trying to work out exactly how where these people went to and what that contribution was, but it's significant. And have you done any sort of analysis about how London's contribution compares maybe to uh, Paris or Berlin? Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? Um, it's uh, with Berlin, yes. Um, uh, but it's the hard thing about doing it with Berlin is that um, economically, London's able to recover a lot quicker because we ultimately, you know, we're on on the winning side. Whereas for Berlin, that economic recovery is is a lot slower. With regards to manpower and population, both of them are a lot smaller cities. Um, and uh, in France, if we look at Paris, for instance, there is a the figures are skewed because in Paris, the um, unlike Germany and the UK, there is a larger rural population than urban. So with come comes with that is the education system. Uh, which means that most Parisians are of a higher standard of education and people live in the rural communities. And as a result, they tend to fill the ranks of the engineers and the artillery. Uh, so you have the largest amount of casualties in the French army suffered by the rural population. Uh, so, you know, we don't see as many casualties from Paris, but we do see a high amount of people enlisting. Um, and the long term effect on that for France, of course, is that uh, the fact that the 
casualties had heard, uh, occurred largely amongst the rural population, alongside that the war had been fought across rural France, uh, means that the population growth is a lot, the recovery is a lot slower than that in the UK and in Germany. So by the time we get to the 1930s, it's still stunted to the degree that they haven't got enough men of military age to make that that large standard army that's required for the Second World War and are forced into static lines like the Maginot Line. So, you know, very different sort of problem for Paris than London. So returning back to London, what was the capital's economic contribution to the war effort? It it was the beacon for the empire. You know, it, it stood for everything. All of the trades, global trades came through London. The most significant early role um, and, the, you know, that came straight down to the Bank of England uh, from the UK government was that their job was to prevent panic buying uh, that we see in any conflict. And by and large, that that was there were no runs on the bank as such. Um, so they managed to establish that. Then they were going to be bankrolling it. And uh, it's a, a third of the uh, GDP was put into the war effort in this country, a significantly more than than we saw in World War II. Um, there was the issue of war bonds and loans to raise funds that all came through the city of London. And by and large, banking continued and trade continued throughout the empire as a result of, you know, our Royal Navy being the strength it was. The largest downturn that is would have long-reaching effects um, was merchant shipping, because the shipping industry as well was played out through London. And actually, there's a 10% decline in, in Britain's merchant trading with the rest of the world as a result of the war, whereas we see other markets, Japan doubles, and the US you know, quadruples the amount of merchant stuff they're carrying around the world. So you can see emergence of the American empire, which to this point in history, we've not referred to it yet as that, but I'm sure in a thousand years, that's how it will be called. You know, the American economic power uh, empire uh, was starting to not take advantage, but seize opportunities that were left there by London's focus purely on the war. Uh, if you remember, you know, we argue about Britain's war aims uh, endlessly as academics, but largely the consensus is that Britain's war aims are to oversee a mainland continental European war, send a small army to ensure that we had some involvement, whereas primarily we're going to bankroll it from London and we are going to use our Royal Navy to make sure the seaways are open for all of our allies. Uh, and when we raise that Kitchener's army, it's really to hold it back and not deploy it until France and Russia are on the point of exhaustion, uh, Germany's on the point of collapse, and then we send them in, Kitchener leading them in on his horse, so we can turn around to uh, France and, and Russia and say, oh, good job we arrived, uh, look what would have happened, and we can say to the Germans, we've beaten you, and come out of it as the dominant nation. And you know who achieves those war aims is the US, effectively, isn't it, at the end of it. So it's, it's interesting, but you know London would have been a key part of that. So... Keep calm and carry on. Had it been invented in 1914 and not the Second World War would have been the, the key phrase. Let's keep the, the markets going as they were. Let's keep it busy. Let's keep trading. Uh, and let's just, you know, um, raise enough money to fight this war. And they just about managed to do so. Does London become a sort of, a, I suppose, a, a magnet for people seeking work during the Great War? It does. And it also is a far more important centre uh, culturally then than it is now. Uh, so most units come through London 
to go to the war, go to France. You know, you start your journey to the trenches from London railway termini. So if you're Australian, you're a Canadian soldier, at some stage in your service, you will come through London, you'll see London, you'll see the sights of London. And it almost reinforces its importance to them. You know, you've come from, maybe you've never been to Europe before, and suddenly you can hear Big Ben, you can see Buckingham Palace, you know, see the Tower of London. All of these things are, are it's omnipresent, so reinforcing it. Um, and with that, uh, you know, it's a, a bit of an economic boom just in things like coffee stalls and being able to supply these soldiers. Wounded, the wounded trains come back in through London. You know, you don't necessarily, I mean, there's big sidings at Folkestone that we know about and things, but you still come back through to London. So it's it's almost inconceivable today to think that you could be wounded in Gallipoli and you get off a train at, at, at uh, you know, St Pancras or the world, at um, Victoria in the main. It just, you know, so everything came back in through London. It was far more of a hub than it is now. The electronic world means that you can can completely exist your whole life having never have to come to London. That might not have been the case in 1914. And does London have a, a big impact in terms of the morale of the Allied war effort? Um, well, again, you could probably say that the, you know, the theatre, there's no TV, obviously no internet, no, no radio and those things. So a lot of cultural um, entertainment comes from music hall, comes from the theatres in London. So from that point of view, it has a big influence. Uh, you know, we'd send people out to um, entertain the troops. You know, I've got a one of the, the um, guys, I've got a big collection to, a guy called Jack Maris, who was in the Artist Rifles, the 28th Town in the London Regiment. Uh, he was actually a, a West End set designer. He used to paint the sets at the Strand Palace Theatre. Uh, so directly involved in the arts. And he used to um, go around the Western Front whenever he could and go to concert parties. And I've got a whole wadge of concert party programmes that he picked up. And it's not unheard of for them to say, you know, a direct from London, we have this artiste performing for the troops alongside the more amateur sort of efforts of the, uh, the, the Ace of Spades or the, you know, the fighting dumbbells, whoever the concert party troop are. Um, I mean, one in particular says... Uh, at some stage in the evening, Miss Ellen Terry will say a few words. Uh, so she's obviously going to come out from London, entertain the troops, and everyone would have heard of her. In fact, I've just been out um, looking at the uh, American divisions up in uh, uh, in the Eep Salient and uh, it's back end of the Battle of the Lease and across to the um, Wolverham Cemetery. And uh, Harry Lauder goes and visits the American troops. Now, he's a Scottish entertainer but he's playing the London theatres and brings with him his latest London review for the entertainment of the Americans. And they, it was a household name to them as well. In fact, he's really disappointed when they just come out the line the same day he's performing and there was only a crowd of 250 turned up and he said, I can't perform to such a small audience. So the sergeant majors go around waking a few of the troops up to bolster the numbers so that he starts to perform. Um I mean, the uh, one of the insights into how culturally London has its influence was a, a very underrated and um, publication by the Evening News called 500 Cockney War Stories. Um, so uh, most people with an interest in London have seen a copy of it over the years. It was only ever came out in paperback, so not many survived. But this was a, a, a collection of letters that have been published in the Evening News uh, between the wars from people, little comic incidents that involve Londoners. And what you can see is 
you know, a bit like a Geordie or Scouse humour, that, that Cockney humour, that Cockney sense of irony and just carrying on. It was all across every theatre of war. There sometimes could be a bit cloud, a bit loud, London, as you hear them above other people, I suppose, sometimes. And uh, uh, so that influence would definitely have been there. Now, what I found in my PhD, obviously, which looks at London soldiers, was that London was not a focus for people's, I suppose, local patriotism. Whereas you've got people who have a relationship hey, with Lancashire, Helen McCartney's work, mm. I'm thinking of. Now, I don't know whether this was just my research, but nobody seems to identify as London as the motivator to fight. They were fighting for um, king and country. They weren't fighting for Ealing or Fulham, where mm. they might fight for a small town like um, Liverpool in the same way. Mm. Did you find that London has a sort of a sense of patriotism? I mean, there's a local patriotism that motivates soldiers in the trenches. Initially, no, but it changes for for a number of reasons that, as soon as you mention them, become quite obvious. Um, uh, so initially, the patriotism is lower down the working classes. So there's less, you know, let's fight for Chelsea. But there's quite a lot of Bermondsey boys will take the war to Germany, you know, and... Uh, come join the Charlton lads, we're off to fight a war. And those postcards you see all the time. So right down at local level communities, some people felt this was a time for them to thrive and shine and show what they could do. Um, and what, what really, I think, almost unites London in, in the fight um, against, uh, and, it, and it's got an unsavoury, quite a nasty side to as well that we'll come to, uh, are things like uh, the first bombing on London. You know, the Six City London Rifles Drill Hall at Farringdon Road is bombed in, in I think it's in 1915, right, and uh, damaged. And as a result, the battalion uh, has a hastily local trench raid on the German positions to put up a, a sign saying, don't bomb London. You know, that sort of thing. Bringing the war directly to the capital unites them. It suddenly becomes personal. And, you know, Hartlepool, we see it in Hartlepool when Hartlepool's bombed. We see it in Great Yarmouth and Great Yarmouth's bond. It suddenly becomes a lot more personal. If you're in the frontline trenches and you receive a letter from home to say, we've just been bombed here, you know, it's going to cause uh, quite a lot of anger and angst. And um, the first time that Londoners do tend to react um, angrily uh, to the war uh, well, when war's declared, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, pressure on the German community. But actually, when the first Belgian refugees arrive and they arrive in London, uh, because in those days, that's where refugees came uh, and they arrive in London and Londoners see the state of them and start to hear the stories of what's happened as the Germans have come through on the Battle of the Frontiers. There is there are quite a lot of uh, breakdowns in civil you know, um, discipline and disturbances and they're rioting and you know one riot goes on for five days across areas of london where they're literally rampaging through 131 metropolitan police officers injured because they're putting themselves in between the german community and and the locals so things do take a turn and there's that side of any city has got a tough element to it and uh you know it starts to bob, bob bubble under um, so, yeah, by the time we get to 1916, London's very much united and we see a lot more of it. And of course, having London divisions in the field is something as well that you can start to really get behind. Um, but I think what you touch on, Tom, was really important because we had came across or I came across numerous accounts of people rather than enlisting in the local regiment, like the idea of maybe wearing a kilt. So we'll enlist in a Scottish regiment, even though they've got no connection with Scotland just to be different. Um, 
and there's that wonderful Christmas card of the Fitters Highland Division, where it says on it something like, uh, um, raised on a diet of porridge and oats from Camden Town to John O'Groats, you know, because the amount of Londoners end up in the Fitters Highland Division towards the end of the war. My penultimate question is, how do you rate the contribution of London to the war effort in relation to other parts of the UK and the British Empire? That might be um, a relatively straightforward question and maybe somewhat somewhat weighted and biased in your case. Uh, well, I really don't want it to be because that's the worst thing you can do is that um, I think I'm going to probably sit on the fence and I, I'm going to say that London more than pulls its weight in the Great War. It does everything that's asked of it. And yet it doesn't seem to blow its own trumpets at the end of the war. You know, there is there are divisional memorials. And I'm a big fan of divisional memorials, actually. Uh, we could get on another subject. I'm not such a fan on nationalistic memorials being put up a century after the conflict when you should have divisional memorials because that's the formations the men fought under. Um but we don't have sort of a, a you know, this is what London did in the Great War. We have the I mean there's the amazing memorial outside uh, the Royal Exchange there, the London Soldiers Memorial that has the order of battle and has all the battle honours that were uh, awarded. But they fight in every theatre, they fight in every campaign, and uh, they send enough men whilst maintaining London's importance to keep going. Uh, You know, just things like the docks remaining open throughout and the munitions factories, and which it greatly involves the employment of women as well, which is a significant story. You know, the London's transport continues to go despite the fact that we send over a thousand of our buses uh, to help with the war effort. So if you take a thousand buses off the road today, you're going to have a problem. Um, but they managed to just about do it. They make do amend. And um, I think it's every part is comparable to any other uh, city, county, and I'd say comparable to country that fights in the Great War. And that's something we should be proud of, is that as a city, we can be compared to counties, uh, sorry, to countries, which I think is a is a real achievement for them. And something I'm family directly involved in. I should just say, Tom, two very quick things about my own family, you know, of that were fought with London units across the globe, is that, you know, I had lost a... Um, an uncle in, in Palestine uh, fighting with the London division there and uh, lost a family home in the Great War uh, in Charlton when it was flooded as a result of the Silvertown explosion causing a tsunami equivalent across the Thames. So the whole of the lower reaches of Greenwich, Woolwich and Charlton were flooded and, and we lost a home. We were rehoused up the hill in Lee Green uh, as a result of it. So it was something that directly impacted on our family. Um, And then we go on and lose a few more homes a few decades later when the Blitz comes as well. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's something I'm very proud of. And my final question, Clive, is where can people learn more about your tours, your work and your forthcoming PhD? Fingers crossed. (laughs) Well, the forthcoming PhD is um, is on an entirely different uh, subject, but one that's very close to my heart as well. And that is the uh, what the impact of the emergence of football. Uh, in the British Army has on morale, tactics and uh, fitness between the period of sort of 1900 and 1920. Uh, So that's something I really want to get stuck into over the winter. Um, So all being well. Um, The tours, www.battle-honours.co.uk. We can find Battle Honours pretty much by putting in a Google search. And of course, we we arrange the tours for the Western Front Association. So if you're a member of the Western Front Association, 
don't be shy. Come on one of these national tours we do. Jack Sheldon and myself giving you the side from both sides of the wire. Um, and it, it'd be lovely to have you along on the tour and we could de- debate uh, London's contribution over a beer. Uh, for regards to where you can find out more about this subject in particular, uh, there's a um, it is a talk that I, I'm happy to give to branches. Um, and uh, as long as don't meet on a Saturday, uh, because I am a football fan and, uh, I, you know, I can't go about my fix. I'm afraid. Um, but uh, I tend not to do Saturday meetings. But other than that, I'm more than happy to come down and give you a talk. And equally, uh, more importantly, uh, next year is a conference and a book called London Pride, which is going to cover all aspects of London's contribution in the Great War uh, from people far more cleverer and erudite than me. So uh, make sure you, you, you know, you get involved in that and come along, come to the conference, read the book. And, and we can all uh, see what London achieved and contributed to the Great War. More information will follow in due course. <laughs> Clive, thank you very much for your time. That's no problem. Thanks, Tom. That's great. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...